Good to go. All right. Um, if you remember back uh, two weeks ago, we had the Sunday School program last week, so it's been a little while. We had just gotten into what is known as modern philosophy, or more specifically, modern continental philosophy, because we're dealing with the modern philosophers who are on the continental Europe, so Germany and France, um, Italy even, um, but primarily in Germany and France. And we talked about last time the father of modernism, a lot of these characters that we're going to cover for the rest of the course, they have a nice little nickname. Descartes was known as the father of modernism. Today we'll talk about Leibniz, who was known as the great optimist. We'll talk about uh, David Hume, who was the great skeptic. We'll talk about George Berkeley, who was the great immaterialist. They're all great something. Um, so they're little catchphrases to remember them by. Um, and if you remember the thrust of what modernism was um, through the eyes of Descartes, uh, Descartes was disenfranchised with the ancient philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. Descartes came on the scene in the late, 1500, or late 1590s, about uh, at the turn of the 1600s. And he was sick of studying Plato and Aristotle. He didn't find any certainty in the work that they had put forth. And he was, frankly, just tired of it. He was captivated by the rising fields of math and science and he wanted somehow to develop a certainty in philosophy, a certainty in politics, a certainty in ethics and love and all these different fields that we found in mathematics. So Descartes set out to do just that, create what was known as a philosophical mathematics. And he does this by systematic doubt, which we talked about last time. He says, if we're going to know anything as certain as we know 2 plus 2 equals 4, we must have only principles that we accept which are 100% indubitable, things that cannot be doubted. So Descartes started by doubting his senses, right? He says, we can't trust our senses because they have fooled us before. So anything we take in through the five senses cannot be trusted as 100% certain. And when Descartes goes through this whole process of breaking down everything he's learned before, he eventually gets to the place where he says, I can only know one thing for certain, right? And that's his famous catchphrase, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And if we remember going back to Descartes, when he says his famous cogito, cogito ergo sum, he doesn't know anything specifically about himself. He says, I think, therefore I am, which simply means every time I think, I know that I exist as something that has the capability of thought. So when he's thinking, he does not know that he's thinking as the man Descartes. He just knows he's something that has the capability to think. Um, so Descartes has created this project. He's got the foundation. This is something we can know as certain as we know 2 plus 2 equals 4. Anytime I think, I'm assured that I'm a thinking thing. But then do you remember what his second principle was? It was a huge jump for Descartes. His second principle was, I have a clear and distinct idea of a body, and God is not a deceiver, so let me trust my senses. Which was a huge, huge dichotomy we see in Descartes, because he went through all of this trouble of trying to prove things which we can know for certain. He gets to himself as this thinking thing, but then he realizes without God, I can't get back out to the world. And so we see the problem with Descartes' rationalism. We can get to ourselves, but we can't get back out the world, which proves to us that an understanding of man must always be tied to an understanding of God. If we don't have an understanding of God, we cannot know ourselves. If we don't know ourselves, we can't understand God. Um, today, with that quick, quick um, recap, we're going to talk about the second rationalist 
in this rationalist tradition. Now remember we talked about there's going to be this huge debate going on in modern philosophy between what are known as the empiricists or empiricism and rationalism. The empiricists were Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. The rationalists were Descartes, followed by Leibniz, followed by Spinoza. Um, Leibniz is known as the great optimist. The great optimist, which is a good thing to be, to be optimistic. Um, and we'll talk about why it was that Descartes called this great optimist. Um, the main reason was Descartes, or Leibniz proposed and believes firmly, and get this, that this is the best of all possible worlds. This world that we currently inhabit is the best of all possible worlds. It could not possibly be better. This is the best. Which, on a first cursory glance looking at that, all of us would probably say, well, I can think of a lot of ways this world could be better, right? There's disease and war and trouble. Yes? What other worlds was he comparing it to? Well, in the realm of metaphysics, um, there's a lot of talk of alternate universes, or when he means possible worlds, of all the worlds God could have created, he could have done it a different way. He couldn't have possibly created one better than this one. So that's mainly what Leibniz was talking about. But now in modern philosophy, you'll hear people talk about parallel universes and alternate universes, alternate uh, realities. But for Leibniz, God, as an infinite creator, a powerful being, he has a choice to create and can do whatever he wants. He couldn't have possibly made a world better than this one. And that should strike all of us as counterintuitive because there's so much trouble, so much evil, so much death and disease in this world. Uh, is anyone familiar with Voltaire? You guys have all probably read Voltaire at one point in your life, right? Um, has anyone read Candide, Voltaire's famous work? Mr. Phillips, you read a little bit of it. Do you remember Candide at all? It seemed rather uh, immoral to me, so I didn't continue. You didn't continue with the reading. Anyone else read Candide from Voltaire? Voltaire's famous work, Candide, it's a good little work to pick up because it's, uh, it's very, very short, so you can read it in a day, maybe you know, 80, 100 pages depending on the edition that you get. Um, but in Candide, uh, Voltaire basically has a whole satire of Leibniz philosophy, and Leibniz philosophy that this is the best of all possible worlds. Uh, basically, the story goes something like this. There's a great doctor by the name of Pangloss, um, and Dr. Pangloss, we've actually gotten the great uh, vocabulary word of the day from, Panglossian. Has anyone heard of the word Panglossian before? It's a good one to add to your vocabulary. Panglossian just means extreme, over-the-top optimism. Right? So you can have Panglossian optimism if you are overly optimistic. So in Voltaire's work, we have this Dr. Panglos, who is basically um, a satirical version of Leibniz. And Panglos has a young student in the work Candide by the name of Candide. And Panglos keeps telling Candide throughout the work that, Candide, I know there's lots of trouble in the world, but this truly is the best of all possible worlds. And Candide is really having trouble dealing with this idea. And throughout the story, Candide goes through, just runs the gauntlet. He runs the ringer. He goes through so much trouble in his life. He goes out on a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World, and the ship is shipwrecked, and a bunch of the passengers dies. He gets to a third world country, and there's an earthquake, and a bunch of people die. Candide is actually made to run the gauntlet at one point throughout the work. And you guys know what running the gauntlet actually means, right? He would actually had to get into the street, and there were people on each side, and he ran through as they throw stones at him, and they whipped him with, with metal, 
and they, they hit him with bats. Um, he was beaten and bruised. Candide encounters a, a woman in the work who had one cheek of her buttocks cut off so that every time she would sit down in a chair, she would fall over and she would keep trying to get up and sit down, but she kept falling over, over and over again. And so he goes through like outrageous evil he sees in the world, an outrageous trouble, and he sees death and suffering. And at the end of the work, Candide returns home to the Dr. Penglos he had been studying under, and there's this famous ending scene to the work Candide, and Candide's sitting down with Dr. Penglos, and Dr. Penglos says, well, Candide, what is it that you've learned on your journey? And Candide says, well, Penglos, you certainly are right that this is the best of all possible worlds. Because if I had not been through all of that suffering, if I had not seen everything that I had gone through, then I would not be sitting here with you right now eating these candied pistachios. And that's how the work ends. And you get through it and you're like, are you kidding me? This guy saw death and suffering and earthquakes and shipwrecks and people with half a butt. And he comes back and he said, well, it was all worth it because if not, I wouldn't be here right now eating these candied pistachios. Right, the idea of like the butterfly effect, right? Well. You went through a lot of suffering in your life, but if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be in this moment right now, right? If you would have made a left-hand turn at one point instead of a right-hand turn, you wouldn't be where you are. So this truly is the best of all possible worlds. So clearly, Voltaire does not like Leibniz's idea, right? He's mocking him. He's a, well, more or less, he's mocking the work that Leibniz had put forward. So we're going to talk about exactly whether Voltaire understands Leibniz correctly and how Leibniz could actually get to the place where he believed, in the midst of all this suffering, that this truly was the best of all possible worlds. And it's something we have to ask ourselves why. Because if God truly is good, and he is all-powerful, then can we believe that God would make a world that was less good than a world he could possibly make? And that's something that's difficult for the Christian to deal with, going back to the problem of evil. If God is supremely good, wouldn't he make the best? Why would he make something subpar? Um, so Leibniz believes he didn't. Now, Leibniz is a rationalist just like Descartes. And remember the central tenets of rationalism were basically the rationalists are the people that believe that there are such things as innate ideas, that we can't truly trust our senses, but there are certain things we can innately know, we can reason about these things. The rationalism of Leibniz, however, is slightly less rational than the rationalism of Descartes. So I'll repeat that. The rationalism of Leibniz is slightly less rational than the rationalism of Descartes because Leibniz starts off his project with two presuppositions. Now remember, Descartes wouldn't start off his project with any presuppositions. He says, only things that I can know for certain. And a presupposition is what? Something we suppose, but we don't know for certain. And Leibniz says we must presuppose two things for certain in order to have any knowledge. And the first thing he says we must presuppose is what's known as the principle of sufficient reason. It's just a fancy way for saying, don't accept anything that you don't have a sufficient reason for accepting. So basically, don't just accept things on the authority of other people unless you have a really sufficient reason to accept it. So he says, we must presuppose that idea. Never accept anything that you don't have a sufficient reason to accept. And then the second thing that Leibniz says we must presuppose in order to have any knowledge about the world is the law of non-contradiction. We must presuppose the truth of the law of non-contradiction. Now, we're all familiar with the law of non-contradiction, correct? The law of non-contradiction plainly states, A, 
cannot be both A and not A at the same time and in the same sense. Right? Something cannot be both itself and the opposite of itself at the very same time and in the very same sense. Things can be itself and not itself at a different time and in a different sense. Right? An orange can be both orange in one sense and orange juice in a different sense, but not at the exact same time. Right? In a different time, it could be orange juice. But an orange can both not be both an orange and not an orange at the same time. Right? Everyone subscribes to that law. Does anyone have a problem with the law of non-contradiction? No, we must accept it. Um, if we don't accept it, then reason is meaningless. And Leibniz understood that. So he says we must presuppose the law of non-contradiction. And he does this for a specific reason. Because he says if we presuppose the law of non-contradiction, from there we can gather the other laws of logic. The law of, of non-contradiction enables us to gather the law of identity. And from the law of identity, we're able to gather the law of excluded middle. So more or less, if we presuppose the one law of non-contradiction, we can get logic. And if we get logic, Leibniz believed it's very, very important because there's one argument for the existence of God that can be proved through logic alone. Something that we can know a priori. As if anyone remembers back a couple weeks when we did the arguments for the existence of God, there was one philosopher that set out through reason alone through an, to create what's known as an a priori, without experience, argument for the existence of God. Does anyone remember that argument? It was St. Anselm. And St. Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God, which was proved through reason alone. So Leibniz sets out his whole project saying, I want to be a rationalist. I only want to accept things. I don't want to accept anything through the senses. But there's two things we must presuppose. If I presuppose the sufficient reason and I presuppose the law of non-contradiction, the law of non-contradiction allows me to use St. Anselm's argument for the existence of God. And once I have the existence of God, what can I do? I can trust my senses just like Descartes eventually had to get to. Because if God exists and God is good, God is not a deceiver, I can trust my senses. So now I can get out at the world. So Descartes, although, or Leibniz, although he is a rationalist, is slightly less rational than Descartes because he realized, well, Descartes tried to be rational, but he eventually had to get to a place where he presupposed that he could trust his senses. I'm just going to start off by saying, God's not a deceiver, let me trust my senses. Does that kind of make sense to everyone? All right. So let's talk about Leibniz's project at this point, right? So he wants to set out this rational understanding, this rational complete picture of the universe. Just like Descartes wanted a philosophical mathematics, Leibniz is a sort of a system builder. And Leibniz is particularly interested in the growing field of atomic chemistry at the time. And it wasn't actually called atomic chemistry, it was called corpuscular philosophy at the time. Right? Corpuscles were the precursor to atoms. So with guys like Locke and whatnot. And Leibniz was very, very confused by the idea of what the scientists were saying about atoms at the time. Now this is the 1600s, the start of the Enlightenment, um, the, the rise of math, the rise of science, and scientists were saying that the entire universe was made out of the same substance. Everything was made out of atoms. But what scientists were saying at the time didn't jive with Leibniz's logical mind because they said that atoms were the smallest unit of matter that an atom was the smallest unit of matter. 
Does anyone right off the bat see a problem with that statement? An atom is the smallest piece of matter. Well, Leibniz says there's a huge problem with this. Right, if there, there's an atom, right? This is the smallest piece of matter. Nothing could be smaller. And Leibniz says, well, what if we had half of that thing? We might not have the capability to do it, but if we had half of that, wouldn't that be smaller than the atom? Right? But what's the, so that, the half of an atom is the smallest piece of matter. What's the problem with that? You get half it again. Well, what does that lead to? Or lead to, I should say. Through reductio ad absurdum, which is just a logical term to say, and we just keep taking something to the extreme, then we'd have to say what? Nothing could be the smallest piece of matter, because if it is matter, then it's what? It could be divided again. We might not have the capability to do it, so nothing by logical necessity could ever be the smallest piece of matter. Yet scientists are telling us that something is the smallest piece of matter. This is basically a play on um, something that had been around way before Leibniz, known as Zeno's paradox. Anyone familiar with Zeno's paradox? Zeno's paradox comes to us um, in the work of Aristotle. Um, and Aristotle was talking about how there was a mythological time where a tortoise challenged the great Achilles to a race. And the tortoise says, Achilles, I guarantee that I can beat you in a race. And obviously Achilles would be the tortoise in a race, correct? But the, uh, the tortoise says, well, I have one, uh, one concession that you have to make to me before we start this race. You must give me a 10-meter head start. We're going to race a mile, and all I need is a 10-meter head start, and I'll beat you in a race. Now, all of you, if you were a betting person, and you went to, uh, to Vegas, and you wanted to throw your money down on the tortoise with a 10-meter head start, or Achilles, where are you placing your money? You put it on Achilles. Matt, could you stand up here for a minute? Let me use an example here. So the tortoise, I'll be the tortoise because Matt's probably much faster than I am. The tortoise says, Achilles, you're a fast man. I want a 10-meter head start, and we're going to race to the back of the room, right? So I'm going to start right here. Now, the tortoise says to Achilles, certainly, Achilles, you're going to have to cover the 10 meters ground between us before you can first pass me, right? He's got to first catch up to me. So Achilles, or the tortoise, I'm saying, Achilles, is going to do that way faster than the tortoise would, right? So Achilles, cover the ground. So that takes him a certain amount of time, right, to cover that ground. In that time, although I'm moving slower than him, I still would have moved a little bit, right? It would have been just maybe this. So he still has ground to catch up, correct? So he's got to catch up that ground again, right? And it took him a very, very short amount of time to do it. But even though it was a short amount of time, then what? I was able to move again. And he has to catch up again. Logically, mathematically, he should never be able to catch me. But in reality, what do we experience? He catches me. Right? Thanks, Matt. Um, there's another example people give oftentimes, right? The idea of, well, how can a person mathematically ever get to the back of the room? We know I get there, right? Pastor Vance walks down from the pulpit every day. He gets to the back door. But mathematically, how does he get there? Right? Because in order to get to the back of the room, he has to do what? He has to get half of the way there first, right? And then he has to get another half of the way there again, right? And he has to get another half of the way there. What happens? Mathematically, he, it should take him an infinite amount of time to get to the back of the room. He can never get there. The same example scientists have talked about and mathematicians have talked about the problem of tennis, right? In reality, when a tennis player hits a tennis ball, the ball goes over the net. 
But mathematically, it would seem that the tennis ball should never get there. It can't get there. And still to this day, there are many, many different, really, really complex mathematical solutions to this problem, known as the Zeno's Paradox. But the problem is all of these mathematicians, they disagree on how you actually solve the problem. Right? In reality, something happens. But in mathematics, it doesn't seem like it should be possible. And Leibniz sees the same problem with the atom. You're saying that something is the smallest piece of matter. That is a logical absurdity, according to Leibniz. Nothing can be the smallest piece of matter. But yet, we have matter. So Leibniz wants to propose something, which is going to sound absurd to you at first, but when you think about the principle, it shouldn't sound as absurd. He wants to propose that whatever builds everything in the universe is certainly not an atom. It is something that is non-material. So a non-material something gives form to the material. That is the building block. The building block of matter is non-matter, is non-material. Now, this might sound absurd to you, and it probably did to most people, but not to our scientists that we have out there today, right? Because First, we had the atom, and people said the atom was the smallest unit of measure, right? And then we cracked the atom, and we found a whole world of stuff inside of it, right? Electrons and neutrons and protons. And then eventually, we found the quark, right? In like the 60s or something like that, we found the quark. And scientists said, the quark is the smallest piece of matter. But of course, it's not the smallest piece of matter, because if you can divide the quark, there's something smaller. And eventually, we divided the quark. And what did we find when we divided the quark? Does anyone know? Scientists divided the quark, and we found what? I heard it. Energy. But energy is what? Non-material. It's not physical. So all this physical stuff is energy. But what's energy? It's a non-material thing that gives matter to matter. That is a crazy thing. Well, Leibniz was way ahead of the curve on this, right? He didn't understand the science behind it, but through logical necessity, he said, matter cannot be the building blocks of things. Something that gives physicality to things must essentially be non-physical. And this is what scientists have told us today, right? Everything is made out of energy, right? And I can't wrap my brain around that, right? It's an absurdity, but it's a truth. It's a very strange thing. So Leibniz says, what is it then that gives matter to the non-material. He says, clearly the universe is not made out of atoms, but he says they're made out of what he calls monads. Monads, and you guys have probably never heard of the word monads, and this all comes in Leibniz's great work known as the monadology, the study of monads. Um, it's a short work too, it's a, uh, I wouldn't recommend reading it, it's kind of boring, um, but the cliff notes on it are entertaining. Um, but in the monadology, Leibniz sets out to describe these things that are monads. And he says, all right, so whatever is building the universe is not physical, it's metaphysical or beyond the physical. He says, monads are something that we cannot discover through the microscope. How do we discover them? Through reason. We just reasoned it out, right? Something cannot be the smallest unit of measure, so something non-material must be giving matter to the matter. Right? So he says we discover monads through pure reason. This is what makes him a rationalist, right? Not using his senses, but reasoning out that the universe is made of something non-material. And he says, so what do we know about these monads? Monads are non-material. He says they are like metaphysical points on a line. 
right? In mathematics, right, this is called right, a line segment, right? It's a definitive amount of space, right? Where this is a line or array, right, that goes on how far? Infinitely, right? But if we have a segment, it's a definitive amount of space, right? We all know that in mathematics. But within this line segment, how many individual points are on that line? An infinite. And right again, you're like, math is strange, right? Because we have a definite amount of space with an indefinite amount of points on it, right? An infinite amount of points. How do we know that? Do we know that through experience? Have we experienced every single point? No, you can't because there's an infinite amount. How do we know that? Reason. We reason to it. And Leibniz says this is how we come to the conclusion that monads exist, right? We reason it. They're like metaphysical points on a line. And throughout the monadology, Leibniz goes on to explain monads a little further. He says monads must be simples. Now, what does it mean for something to be simple? What does it mean for something to be simple? Well-defined. Well -defined. A unit. It means... More or less, it has no parts, right? If something is simple, it cannot be divided, right? If it can be divided, right, this, this pen is compound, right? Because it has multiple parts to it, right? A simple cannot be divided. All right, so he says monads are simples. They're metaphysical points on a line. He says these monads are windowless. Now, what does he mean by that? By windowless, he means that they can't interact with other monads. So everything in the world is made up of these monads, and they're windowless, so they can't interact with other monads, right? If, we were in, if you were in a room all by yourself, cinder blocks, right, no windows, you couldn't interact with other people, which means they couldn't help you change in any way, right? You couldn't grow intellectually in that cinder block room. Well, he says these monads are simple, windowless things. Now, what's the problem with saying that a monad is windowless? Now, remember what a monad is, right? Everything in the world is made up of monads. I'm a colony of monads. This pew is a colony of monads. All of you are monads, right? That's what you're made out of. But if you're windowless, then you would never change, right? But if we look around the world, what do we see? Constant change, both in our bodies, in the physical universe, in everything, there's constant change. So how is this change happening? If monads are windowless, they can't interact with one another, how do things change? Well, Leibniz says monads must have what he calls a principle of self-contained change. They must have self-contained change. Which basically means, he says, when God created the monads, created the universe, he created them with all of the perceptions they were ever going to have. It was like a, creating a super, anyone, a, I, I can't, I'm a technologically illiterate. Um, I can't use computers, but I remember when I was uh, going through school back in the day before we had cool computers, you had to do a, a computer programming class like C++ or something like that, and you would type in all this computer code, and then when you get done, you'd hit enter, and you could get your name to like bounce around the computer screen, right, in certain directions, right? And once you hit enter, that computer program had self-contained change. You didn't have to keep hitting keys to make Justin bounce around the screen. It would just go on forever, right? Well, that's Leibniz's idea of the monads. When God created them, he created them with all of the changes that they were ever going to see. Now, right off the bat, if everything in the world is a colony of monads and they were created by God before 
the advent of space-time, or with the advent of space-time, and they all have the principle of self-contained change, what does that tell us right off the bat about our condition? What does that tell us about us? Well, when things don't change, 100% determined. The world would be 100% determined by God, leaving for us no free will. Right? Because if God had programmed me, a colony of monads, to do everything I'm going to do from now until the time that I die, then when I do this, I said, did God know I was going to do that? Yeah, he planned that. What about this? Yep, he knew you were going to do that. Every single thing. So you have absolutely no free will in the Leibnizian monadological scheme. Right? No free will at all. But Leibniz isn't satisfied with that idea. He says... We do have free will, even if every single thing has been predetermined by God. This non-physical monads in the universe, determined by God, we still have free will. And for Leibniz, he says, free will, and this is a great part of Leibniz, is 100% volitional. He says, free will is 100% volitional. Now, what does that mean? What is volition? Volition is choice, intent. Leibniz says we have free will as volitional. Something happens to you, right? You're driving home today from church and somebody rear-ends you. That was determined, preordained by God from the beginning of time, according to Leibniz. But you still have free will, even though it was going to happen. Your free will is your attitude. You can choose to see that as a blessing, or you can choose to curse God and say that was a curse, right? Every event in your life is preordained by God. You can choose to view as a blessing or you can choose to view as a curse. That is your free will, according to Leibniz. You have free will. Now, Leibniz is so set on this idea of monads because Leibniz was engaged in a series of public debates known as the Clark-Leibniz debates. Does anyone know who Clark was? You might know him by his real name. Clark was his pen name. His real name was Isaac Newton. You guys have heard of Newton before, right? Well, Leibniz is engaged in these series of debates with Leibniz, and they were actually developing the integral calculus at the exact same moment. Leibniz published and brought before the committee his whole theory of calculus a matter of months after Newton had. And they said, oh, Newton already did this. So if, if Leibniz was two, three months faster, we would all know Leibniz's name and nobody would know Newton. It wouldn't be there. It would be Leibnizian calculus instead of Newtonian calculus. Well, he's engaged in this series of debates with Newton known as the Clark-Leibniz debates and Leibniz accuses Newton of heresy because Newton has a very, very weird view of the universe. Newton has this view that we have things in the universe, right? Galaxies and, and different uh, heavenly bodies and whatnot. So we have the sun over here, right? And we have Earth and we have Mars and we have Pluto. And what's in between these things, according to Newton? Ether. He says we have space here, and in between space we have the void. Newton says we have space, and in between the space we have the void. Well, what's void? nothingness. Now, it's not empty space. A void is nothing. Now, Leibniz has a huge problem with Newton's idea of the universe as being space and then the void. He says, what this does is accuses God of random action. Because if there's a void here, and 
God decides, well, maybe I want Pluto to be right here instead of right here. Does that affect anything? No, because nothing is getting moved. But imagine, as Leibniz says, if the entire universe is made up of a colony of monads. If everything is monads, there's no void. When I go like this and I move forward, what happens? I'm displacing monads. So what does that do? Changes the entire universe. The whole world is affected by everything else, which puts a higher emphasis on God's creative powers. God couldn't have created a world any differently because any little change he makes would have affected everything else. He's so all-encompassing that everything he does is tied to everything else he does. So things that happen that look random and insignificant, they have a plan in God's purpose because there's no void. There are no hiccups. There are no mistakes. God has preordained those things to happen. This is what leads Leibniz to believe that this is the best of all possible worlds. Because I go to hug my mother and I cause an earthquake in Japan. Right, the butterfly effect, right? This is kind of the precursor to that whole idea. Well, all the good things in the world, everything that happens in the world, everything that God wants to happen, because there is no void, affects everything else. Now, still we get to the question of Job, well, why couldn't he have preordained it to the point where when you go hug your mother, people don't have to die in a tsunami? Well, Leibniz doesn't have that question any better, answer to that question any better than Job had an answer to that question, right? It's still, we don't know. But Leibniz's view is a view that seems to be slightly more compatible with the creative power of God. The universe must be made of non-materials. We know that to be a fact. These non-materials all interact with one another to form this wonderful world that God has created. And we do have free will in this world, the free will of volition, to choose whether to see all the things that happen in our life as a blessing or to choose to see everything that happens in our life as a curse. That's the basics of Leibnizian monadology and the basics of how he gets to the conclusion that this truly is the best of all possible worlds. That's a mouthful. Um, anyone have any questions? Yeah. A hundred percent, right? Leibniz would focus on, on that to, to quite an extreme because the invisible is actually all around us, right? The visible is made out of the invisible. And not just like, oh, invisible because we can't physically see it. No, invisible as in it's not matter, but it makes matter. Um, definitely, certainly. Anybody else? Any other questions? It's a lot of stuff. Well, once again, Leibniz doesn't get, there's, in my study and in most people's studies, we don't come across a really sophisticated philosophical answer for how do we deal with the fall. We have to at one point say, um, and as good Christians say, that God has preordained mankind to fall, right? He has put it in his plan because if he hadn't, 
it wouldn't have happened. Um, does that make God evil? We can't say that, right? Because God is infinitely good. So somewhere in God's plan, the fall works out to the good of mankind, um, which is a very, very difficult thing to deal with. And probably, as I always point out in my atheism versus theism class, if you're, a, if you're an atheist, that's where you want to hammer the Christian because they don't have a good philosophical answer. You don't either um, as an atheist, but they can't give you a philosophically sophisticated answer. They can give you a theological answer, but we can't give a reasoned answer to that. Um, it's a very, very difficult question to deal with. So thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, according to Leibniz, certainly God can't create a void because if there's a void, then random things could happen that are not part of God's plans. It's nothingness. Void in Newton's scheme is even a place where God is not. So it's empty of all things. And that's hard for our minds to imagine because we think of a void as we think of the church being empty. All right, there's a void, but there's still space there. In the Newtonian physics, the void is the lack of space. Um, and I know my mind's not powerful enough to, to grasp that concept because all I've ever seen is space. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very difficult things to deal with. Anybody else? All right, let's close in prayer and get you out of here. Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come together once again and to uh, study these uh, great philosophers and hopefully broaden our minds to think about the world in a different way. Uh, clearly, you have created a world that is uh, in some realms beyond comprehension. I know most people can't, myself included, get our heads around the fact that this non-material gives birth to the physical, um, but you understand it, and uh, we bless you for the wonderful creation you have made. Um, I hope that we can all learn from your word and take from Leibniz the fact that we, at the very least, do have volitional free will, that in every instance of our lives we can choose to view this thing as a blessing from you um, and to bless you in even our sufferings. In your name we pray, amen.